Oh, that's such a good tune. It really is. And there's so much truth to that, though, too, isn't there? In, in our marriages, we should want to grow old with one another and share the remote control and um, wear pink purses if you're men. I mean, that's something we do every day, isn't it? <laughs> but the truth in that is we want to work hard at serving one another. Marriages are challenging. And uh, as we wrap up this series today, uh, one of the things I'm reminded of often is it, it's not easy. It's not supposed to be easy, but it's very rewarding. And if it was easy, then everyone would be able to walk through this journey without any problems at all and succeed in God's eyes. It's challenging. It's difficult. There's so many things that factor into marriage that make it challenging and difficult. I mean, just throw yourself into the mix. You've screwed everything up. I mean, reality, we're, we're, we're fallen people, sinful people. And the minute we think that the marriage is better because of us, we're, we're in trouble. Even... Uh, People who are bright regarding birth order, doctors who have studied birth order. I find these kind of studies fascinating. Yeah, obviously, thinking about me personally and, and my children and, and meeting with couples. There's even challenges that come as a result of where you were born in your family. And so there's studies that are done that, that I think are worthwhile looking at. And Dr. Kevin Lehman is one of the best in this area. It's already hard enough. And no one said it would be easy, but... Even our birth orders impact how successful marriages will be. And so, as you hear some of these, place yourself in that spot because you fit in somewhere. And, uh, and by the way, you can't change now. You're married to that person. So, uh, from here on out, obviously with God's grace. But listen how, that, how birth order impacts marriages. Here's some of the best, best birth order marriages. Only child and youngest, firstborn and youngest, middle child and youngest. So think a little bit there where you fit. Gender plays a role here as well. If you want the absolute best match, it's female only or firstborn marrying a male youngest child who has older sisters. By the way, is there anybody here that fits that combination? Anybody here? Wow, let's just have a hallelujah service, man. Just, man, you, you hit the lottery of marriage. <laughs> <laughs> Ask your wife if that's true, though. <laughs> In Chuck's case, it is. <laughs> best birth order marriages. The last born with older sisters is going to be the best sort of person who brings out the maternal instinct in women. And the oldest sister is likely to have great maternal urges. He would have grown up with girls who have doted on him. This is similar to the treatment he seeks in a wife. And the best place you'll find it is with an older sister. The match work, works both ways. The firstborn needs someone to show her pleasures of sunsets, rainbows, and to remind her that it can be fun to let her mind wander and do something mad or different. The lastborn needs someone to show him that while having fun is a wonderful thing, it takes hard work and perseverance to make those daydreams into reality. Firstborn married to a firstborn. This relationship is likely to have high friction, either butting heads from day one or falling into controller-pleaser pattern. It can be difficult to make this pairing work. Firstborn married to a middle child. The danger here is that the middleborn may, after his or her own behavior, to please the firstborn, while the middle one makes a good match for anyone except perhaps for another middle, she may find the firstborn to be somewhat intimidating and thus will need drawing out. If you marry a hard-driving firstborn, you may be inclined to give up your own desires and dreams to please your more dominant firstborn spouse. However, if you have lastborn tendencies, this can be a very good match for you. Firstborn married to the lastborn. This relationship is an excellent combination. Firstborn can teach the lastborn how to be better organized and that there are times when life must be taken seriously. The lastborn teaches the firstborn that it's okay to have fun once in a while. Here are the worst combinations. Middle child married to a middle child. This relationship has the potential to go either way. If one of the middleborns has firstborn tendencies, 
and one has last born tendencies and traits, this can be a good match. On the other hand, if both partners share the solid and secretive characteristics of middleborns, communication is likely to suffer. Though you'll do well compromising to get along and keep the peace, this match has the least chance of experiencing marital infidelity. Middle child married to last born works best if the middle born has some firstborn tendencies. If the middle is a true middle, she may find himself in, into the last born's more irresponsible lifestyle, creating the problem seen in a last born to last born marriage. If she has last born tendencies, there could be trouble. If she has firstborn traits, then there's a great match. Last born married to a last born. Be careful here. You may have fun, but you'll also feel like life is getting a little out of control with no one in charge. Even lastborns can handle controlled chaos for only so long. Worse birth order mix. Here it is. Only child female and an only child male. Not only will the two butt heads, but neither will have much of a clue about the other gender. Female, worse birth order mix. Last one. Female last born with no brothers, male last born with no sisters. Not only are you compounding the problems of two last borns, but neither really knows very much about the opposite sex, at least in a psychological sense, and so wouldn't be particularly understanding and supportive of each other. The point is this. We're all doomed. That's what the point of this is. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, after reading it, it's like, well, none of us have a chance, do we? It's like, holy cow, how can we get through this? Only by the grace of God. My wife has often said that she thanks my three sisters that I had for shaping me and molding me and literally shaping me with croquet mallets. I still have soft spots on my head for my sisters. I was just having fun, you know, I'd just chase their ball around, make sure if I couldn't win, they wouldn't win either. And I would just hit the ball out across the road. And, and my older sister, Kim, uh, was so upset with little Jimmy. Can you imagine that? Cute little Jimmy Brown, eight years old, that she hit me upside the head with the croquet mouth, knocked me out cold. <laughs> so my wife tells me, Jim, I'm glad you had sisters. So when she's angry with me, she can vicariously live through that action of my sister many years ago. <laughs> it's difficult. Marriage is challenging. Let's not kid ourselves. But it's very rewarding. And so no one said it would be easy. And so today as we wrap up this series, we're going to address that. That I really believe that difficulties, that crises, that challenges, that adversities are good for us. They shape us. They help us grow but how we respond to those in the midst of them will determine the success factor in that situation. Grab your Bibles and we're going to go on a journey today looking at marriage and recognizing. I want you to recognize that it will be difficult. Turn to James chapter 1. And if you need a Bible, our ushers will be glad to put one in your hand. Just raise your hand. And please turn to James chapter 1. Your marriage will be tested. Let's don't kid ourselves to think that it won't. It will be tested. Turn to James chapter 1, and let's look at verses 2 through 4. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. When you find that, stand, we'll read it together. I want you to think about this in the context of relationship and in the context of marriage. So as we read this, picture your marriage, picture your potential marriage, Picture your potential spouse, if that's the route that God takes you, and think about this, con this in the context of marriage. So when difficulty comes, think this, breathe this, let this run through your veins. Ready? James 1, verses 2 through 4. Let's read. Ready? Read. Consider it pure joy. Stop right there. Now think about that. Just consider it pure joy. Now you, you would think after that that it would be all good. But look what the author James says. Consider pure joy. Read with me. My brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, can complete, not lacking anything. You may have a seat. So the point is this. 
Consider it pure joy when you face trials, when you face difficulties, when you face testings in your marriage. Whatever comes your way, your marriage should and will, and not only will it be tested, it can be something, if you responded it in the correct way, to it in the correct way, that can ultimately make you a mature person lacking nothing. Now, that's an incredible response. Now, just think about this right now. There's this rift in your relationship. Maybe it's an outside thing. Maybe it's an internal. Maybe it's, maybe it's her. Maybe it's him. Maybe it's this financial woe. Maybe it's this sickness. Maybe it's this communication breakdown. The author here, James, says, consider it pure joy. Imagine if we did that, just right away, whatever it was. Imagine you're in the midst and you are head-to-head with your spouse, husband and wives, head-to-head, and someone just stops and says, hold on, time out. Praise the Lord. Imagine what, what would happen to that encounter. If you stopped and said, I'm going to consider this pure joy, baby. I hate you right now, but praise God. Imagine what would happen to that encounter if you considered it pure joy. Because, James says, the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And it must finish its course so that you may be mature, not lacking anything. So many marriages today have fallen short of the finish line because of an adverse test in their lives. And James says this, inspired by the Holy Spirit, if you bail out, if you walk away from this, if you give up, then you are lacking becoming a complete person in Christ. And marriages are loaded with these kind of individuals. Just, they're incomplete. They just, they're they're afraid and they don't want to work hard at it. It's too difficult. It's too hard. And so you have all these people that are running this marathon, this 26.2 mile race, and they're bailing out at five and six and seven, nine, 10, 11, whatever it is. And, And they're not experiencing the rewards of a completed race. And James says, it develops maturity. Break that down for a second in the context of marriage. Quit trying to run from your problems, James is saying. Quit looking for a quick fix. Quit giving up on that difficult impasse in your marriage because you end up lacking maturity, short of the finish line. Races aren't supposed to fall short. You're supposed to finish the race. We have many post-race celebrations, and, and you have celebrated them. But James is saying you must walk through all of them. You just can't say, well, this will be easier. That would be more difficult. I'm just doing the 5K today. I'm not running the 10K. No, I'm not ready for a 10K. I'm not ready for a half marathon or a marathon. I'm not ready for the lifetime marathon. Listen, James is saying run through all of them. Otherwise, you'll end up incomplete. You never get, if you're running in a race, you never get the medal until you cross the finish line. You never go to a awards ceremony after a race and someone who only finished halfway and they give you an incomplete ribbon that you wear. They say, hey, where's the incomplete people? Let's celebrate incomplete. No, I mean, have you ever gotten an incomplete? Have you ever gotten the medal that they cut in half and they just medal and say, well, you got halfway. Here's your prize. No, mature people walk through the entire, they, they push through, even when it's challenging, even when you feel like giving up. There lies the problem in most marriages. A huge blow up surfaces and we refuse to work it out because it's just too hard. It's just too difficult. It has been going on for too long. I've been running 10 miles and I'm feeling this pain. I can't go any farther. I want to get rid of this pain in the butt. Go, no. Run, continue, press, deal with it, finish its course, rather than just throwing the problem away and ended up lacking maturity. No one gets the award unless you finish the race. I mean, how many times have you in your journey or maybe someone else, you never did this, you handed in a paper in high school or college or or junior high, and there was the, the teacher gave you, this is what you need to do. You need to study this subject. You need to have footnotes. You need to have this. And so you hand it in and you know you didn't finish it. It's incomplete. And you're like, hey, I did as much as I wanted to. And you hand it in. The teacher hands it back, F, incomplete. You're like, wait a minute. I got like five of the H pages completed. That should be worth something. And she says, no. Or he says, no, it's incomplete. You didn't finish the paper. And we have these marriages that have been stamped as incomplete because someone bailed out. 
You must finish the race, finish the course. Some of you are searching for something that doesn't exist. You want to run this race where there's no pain, where there's no trial, where there's no trouble. Tests and crises are great for our relationships with each other. You will never find a perfect husband or a perfect wife because there are no perfect marriages and perfect people. The trials we go through are essential to the whole sanctification journey. They make us more like Jesus. They shape us to be more like Christ. A godly, intimate marriage is forged and shaped through times of stress, difficulty, and conflict. And James says, consider it pure joy. I know that's challenging. I mean, I'm not pretending like it's easy. But is any journey or anything that's, that's, that you want to accomplish that's worthy and worthwhile, is anything like that easy? It usually takes a crisis to bring serious, deep, and lasting change in a marriage. It makes you stronger, develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its course so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking nothing. It makes you experienced and resilient. You can look at this thing in life and say, we made it through the 5K. We made it through the 10K. And man, I was hurting there. But you know what? I've completed this and we completed this. Then surely we can complete another one. Or maybe we can take another step and do a 15K or 20K. We can continue to move on because we have these milestones along the way where we push through and we're stronger as a result of it. But way too many married couples say things like, they go through seasons of life. And you watch them, and some of you have been through these seasons. Like, you're married, in the first couple years, there's no kids, and you go do what you want. And it's like, we can go out any time tonight, and then all of a sudden, you got this kid, and it's like this beautiful child that you can hardly wait for. And it's like, all of a sudden, they're taking your time, and you're up at night, and, and you have a shortness of sleep. And it's like all those date nights that you used to have and just go when you wanted and blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, you have these people saying, I, got, I need babysitters. This is hard. It's like, I want to say, yeah, it is. It's a season of life. Consider it pure joy when you get to change diapers. Say, praise God. That's what he's saying. Yet how often people are just like, yeah, man, I can't wait till these kids grow up. Listen to me. Every season of life with your family, it should be precious time to enjoy and to grow and to be shaped and become more like Christ. You know, I hear people put these comments out. It's like, so hard. I haven't been out on a date because of this. And we don't have the FaceTime we used to have. And I was like, blah, 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 blah. It's life. Face it. Make something good out of it. It all begins right here and trickles down to your mouth. And what you say about it will res- and how you respond to it will dictate whether you'll have success. Some of the ways that trials are good for us. They cause us to run to God. And you can find comfort in your father's arms. It's like if you don't have trials and you don't have stress and they don't come, it doesn't come along. It's like, well, I don't need you, God. We're doing okay here. And God's saying, hey, what about me? Every father wants his kids to come running to them. Every mother wants their children to sit with them. And there's these moments where we run to God. That's a good thing. It forces you and me to change the junk in our lives so that we become more like Jesus. When we address, I have a problem, I have an issue. Unless we deal with this, then we will never get this race completed. Many people just want to bail out. Just, well, I'm getting rid of him. I'll try someone else. Give me another person. They're too messed up. No, that's not the picture that God gives us in his word. Finish the course. Finish the marriage. Because the end result of walking through all these difficulties is a mature person. Some other ways. You and your spouse get to face the pain together. There's something about fighting a common enemy and a common victory. It's like whatever it is that comes your way, you can, you can stand shoulder to shoulder in the trenches of life and say, we're going to do this. Let's do this. We can do this with God's help. And the the husband says, honey, let's fight for this. Let's win. Let's whip the enemy. Let's stand on the other side and celebrate it. There's something about a common enemy that should draw people together. You're not going in two separate directions. There's nothing like celebrating a victory together. It also gives you a reminder, a memorial to God's grace and an ability to face what comes next. 
Boy, do we need some more victories and stories like that. I love hearing those stories where God came through and two said, you know what, God, we need your help. Help us through this. God gives us a picture of how he wants to help us. Look at Psalm chapter 34. When trials come, look at Psalm chapter 34. He gives us a beautiful picture of, the, of who he is and, and how we should respond to trials and what he is thinking when we're going through difficult times and when our hearts are broken and we think we can't go on. Look what the psalmist says in Psalm 34. Look at verse 17. Psalm 34, verse 17, it says this. The righteous cry out, and the Lord, what? What's it say? Hears them. And he, what? What's the word? Delivers them from their what? The Lord is close to the whom? Who? Brokenhearted. And he saves those who are crushed in spirit. And then the psalmist says this in verse 19. A righteous man may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. It's this beautiful picture that God says, hey, listen, we can get through this. And the reason so many marriages have breakdown and so many people bail out at the five-mile mark instead of finish its course because they're trying to work it out themselves. God says, hey, let me take it. Listen, I'm the deliverer. I'm the healer. You feel crushed in spirit. You feel broken. And many couples feel broken and they're crushed in spirit. God says, hey, lean on me. I can deliver you through this. So you build this memorial. Wow, God brought us through that. Praise God. I didn't think anyone could make it through that. And you, and you get to this next wall, this next trial, and you look back and say, if, if God did that, then he could surely do this. And so you start leaning on him instead of leaning on yourselves. In the New Testament, Jesus says it this way. Come to Jesus, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Sometimes we forget. We think we're in this battle all by ourselves, but we're not. Picture, if you can, with me for a second. I was thinking about this this week when I was thinking about how God wants to take our junk and how God wants to carry our weight and how he wants to, to take the burdens that we have, these trials, these troubles, and maybe it's just sin in our lives. Picture, you're running this marathon, and while you're running, you're carrying this backpack on your back, the marathon of life and marriage. And so... You have this trial that comes, this, 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 this stressful thing that pops in your life. And so instead of giving it over to God, you put it on your back and you're running this race. And then there's this sinful pattern that maybe you're in or your spouse is in. Instead of giving it over to God, you say, I'll carry it. And so as you begin to run this race, people are just running by you. And some of you are feeling like that. It's like, Man, I'm never going to get through this day. I'm never going to finish it. It's just too heavy. Something else comes, and you're carrying this all this weight. And you look up ahead, and you see these other people who are running with bags. And then you see this, this garbage truck. It's running alongside of the runners in this race. It's like, what the world is that? You look up there, and these people are running with these, this garbage on their back. And then you see this garbage truck stop, and then you hear, beep, 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 beep. And it stops and backs up, and this runner takes this junk, this trial, this tribulation that he has been carrying, and he throws it into the back of this garbage truck. The slide comes down and pushes it inside. The truck takes off, and you watch this person that was barely making it just, and you're running. And then another trial comes, oh, take it. And then you look up ahead, and there's that truck again. And this person throws their junk in the back and they're free and you see them take off. And then you're running thinking, man, can someone take my junk? And you're running and you look and you look at this driver. It's Jesus and he's driving the garbage truck. Jesus saying, you know, no, I got this one. No, you don't. I got it. I got it. And he's driving and he's waving saying, drop your junk. And then he starts chasing you in the race in reverse. Beep, 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 beep. I got this one, Jesus. And until we drop it all on him, you will never be free. You see, Jesus carried our junk and our garbage. 
to the cross and he takes it to the landfill of forgiveness. And he said, I died for that. I died for that trial. I died for that adversity. Let me care. If you're weak and heavy laden, I'm good at releasing you of this junk. And I have these people who walk into my life and your life and these marriages and you see them come in. It's like, whoa, they can't even get through the door because they're carrying all this junk from him and her. And I want to say, release it. I just love to have an office, a truck that we had and just came beeping down the hall. Beep, 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 beep. Before you come in, dump. And that's what Jesus is saying. Weak and heavy laden. Let me take it. It's so often... We don't. We don't run to Jesus. And he wants to release all of our pain. And the only way that happens, though, is this. We keep Jesus at the center of our relationship. I stand almost amazed because you can watch it unfold in a person's life. They're having trouble in a marriage. And if they continue to try to work it out themselves, they come to a point where their theology begins to change. Like, He's been doing this for five years. He's been doing this for six years. And I watch these people who all of a sudden, who were, who were Christ followers. It's like they begin to say things that aren't in Scripture anywhere. And they're looking for people to justify their actions. And, and they long for that to happen. And they say things like, you know, I, I, I never loved him. I never really loved him. Oh, yes, you did. And you hear them say things like, it's too difficult. It's too hard. And I've been... I'm just sick of the pain. Yeah, because you've been carrying it. And I watch these people who, whose theology just all of a sudden who were Christ followers and who would stand for truth and say, my God can do anything and with God all things are possible. And all of a sudden their theology changes because of the stress, the trial, the tribulation and because they didn't release it. And all of a sudden they're trying to figure it out themselves. These are people who were once Christ followers. And when I hear it, I just say, man. And so you know what happens? They begin to justify their actions. And then they look for people who agree with them. And so they'll go find someone who ran out of the race, who dropped out of the race, instead of running on and fighting on and not giving up. And they go to them and say, man, my husband and the, the, the latest, yeah, I know. I know, that's how my husband used to be. I got rid of him. You know what? You've just had too much pain in your life, too much pain in this relationship. It's just too bad. He's not going to change. You want to know what I would do? I would boot him out. And so they were like, oh, really? And so we try to build, well, you know what she said? She's a Christian. She said, get rid of him. And so you go find someone, and you watch these people justify their steps by other people. Let me tell you something today. That is the voice of the enemy. Now listen to me. Way too many people go to the wrong people for advice. And advice is cheap. And here's why. You could go to someone who tell you these things that's too hard, it's too difficult. And they'll say like this. Well, if I were you, this is what I would do. Let me tell you. They're not you. And they don't have to live with the consequences of your decisions. They go to the home from what happened, spending time with you, and go to the chief and get the flavor of the night and forget all about it. They don't have to deal with that. They don't carry the emotional baggage that happens when the kids are gone and when there's separation, when there's pain, when there's all these things that they don't want to talk about. All they want you to do is say, it's been too hard, it's been too difficult, quick fix, get rid of the problem. And Jesus is saying, no, walk through this. I want to carry this. Advice is cheap. Start asking the right people. Serious. Why would you go to someone who hasn't labored through, who hasn't stood at the prefaces of just, it seemed like hell, and said, by God's grace, this is what he's done. That's where you need to get advice. Quit running to, well, if I were you. Proverbs talks all about getting a, a multiple counselors that are wise. And so what happens is you have all these pockets of people here. This is what I did too. Yeah, my husband, he was like that too. Man, he's just, he was just horrible. You know what I did? I just got rid of him. My wife, oh my goodness, I was on the corner of the roof. Most of our marriage, I just kicked her out. No. Jesus is saying, I'm waiting. I'll take that burden. I'll take that weight. 
I'll carry it. And James says, when you walk through those times, that person who has finished that part of the race, who has finished that trial, who has finished that struggle is mature. And you know why? Because they're more like Christ. What if Jesus would have given up when he was tested? What if Jesus halfway up to Golgotha said, forget it. You know what? We would all be in hell. But we have a Savior who looked the trials and the troubles and the pain and the sin and said, I am going to finish. And he had his arms on the cross and he said, it is finished and I'm grateful for it. We need some finishers in marriages today. I'm not pretending it's easy. It's not supposed to be easy. Quit listening to the cheap advice of a friend who's just quite frankly tired of hearing you talk about it. And go to a sister who says, listen to me. This is what can happen with the God that I serve. Who says, my Bible says, with God, all things are possible. That's where you need to get advice. That's who you need to surround yourself with. You want to win in life? Hang out with wise people who love God. Listen to what they're speaking and not the negative voices of it could never be done. John 15, 5 says it this way. If we remain in him, we can do anything. Think about that for a second. If we remain in him, we can do anything. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Turn to Hebrews 12 and I'm going to give you a beautiful picture of how that is true. Turn to Hebrews 12, please. Hebrews chapter 12. I want to speak some truth today to you in a strong way. I want to tell you to finish, to hold on, to press through. Don't bail out. Hebrews 12, look at verse 2. I love this picture of our God. And the author says this in Hebrews 12 too. He says, let us fix our eyes on whom? What's it say? Jesus, the what? Author and the what? Perfecter. A better version was actually translated, would be finisher. The, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And what we're saying here is, look at the finisher. Get your example from the finisher. Get your example from the God who finished, not from someone who bailed out. Hang out with finishers. I want to show you what I mean by that. I think every relationship that we're in, marriage relationship, needs to focus on Jesus. Hebrews 12 says that we should focus on Jesus. The author, perfecter means finisher, of our faith. And when we focus on him and get our help from him, then we will finish and me won't fail. Every marriage begins like this. You have God at the top. You have the man or husband. You have the woman or wife. You begin with a distance between the two of you. Wife knows husband, but there's a, there's a distance, there's a gap. And so in a marriage relationship, the goal is to get to know each other better, to be able to, to work as one. It's two becoming one. But there's a natural separation in this first time encounter. And so in order for us to grow closer to together, we must first put God at the center. So Follow along with me. You have the husband, and his desire is get to know God. And so he's on this, it's called the sanctification journey, becoming more like God. He's trying to become more like God. And he wants to get to know God. Our primary responsibility is always for us to get to know God. That's what we can control. For the wife, the same should be true. She is on this journey to get to know God. That's what she wants to do. And so as she continues to, to pray and meditate and study 
and soak time in his word, she continues to get to know God. And the more we become like Christ, the better chance we have. Now, look what happens to the, the husband and wife. As they both work closer to God, the distance between the two of them gets closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer and closer. A lot of relationships try to get close to each other and they leave God out. And so they never feel the intimacy. So picture this. Your goal is to come more like God, keep him at the center. And the closer you get to him, the closer you get together. But here's what often happens in relationships. He's on this journey to come more like God. She says, you know, I'm going to go back here and stop. And what happens is he might be on this journey, but the distance between the two of them is no better than what it was than when they started. Or she might be up this journey coming this way. And he says, I'm only going that far. So the distance between them never closes. The picture is when we both get more like God, we get closer together. So people say, well, Pastor Jim then, what about me? I'm, I'm the wife. I love God. I'm on my knees praying and man, he just won't move. You know what else happens in this journey? As you get closer to God, the fruits or the fruit of the spirit begins to surface. Love, joy, goodness, kindness, patience, gentleness, self-control. And all of a sudden, your lenses look different. And you look at this man a lot different than you did down here. And the Bible tells us this, that a wife will win her husband over by the way she lives her life. This isn't rocket science. But picture this. Your goal in getting to know each other is getting to know God. And the closer you get to God, the closer you get to each other. I cannot tell you how many times in my own marriage with my wife, Anne, that as I've gotten closer to God and be sensitive to the Spirit of God and being filled with the Spirit as I got closer and closer and closer to God, God revealed my own sin in my own life. And I had to repent. And it drew us closer together because repentance draws us closer to God. You see, you need to surround yourself with people of faith that believe this instead of people of doubt. And way too many people just hang out with incomplete people who lack maturity. Be a finisher. Go to Jesus. That's who you need to hang out with. He finished the race, he finished the course. John 3.30 says it this way, he must become greater and we must become less. You see, my Bible tells me that when a man is weak, he is strong. Something profound happens in a marriage when Jesus gets elevated. Imagine that. You see, he's waiting for us to ask him for help. I often wonder when we stand before God, I always wonder these kind of things. When we stand at the Bema seat, the Bema seat is where Christians go and we're judged for the good things we've done. And somehow God throws our whole lives in front of us. I've often wondered as we stand there, I wonder if God will say, you know, see the situation in your life right here at this crossroads where you were in this marriage. Listen, he said, imagine this is what it could have looked like if you just asked me for help. And, he, and then he plays it out and you're like, wow, why didn't I just give it to you? Boop, 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 boop. He said, I was backing it up and you just ignored it. You were listening to that coworker who said, run, don't finish. The closer we get, the more we're leaning upon his wisdom. You know, doesn't every father want to help his children, by the way? I, I love helping my kids. And, and, and I, I love helping them. And whenever I get a chance, I, I love it. You know, even this week, Hannah gave me a call and she, after tennis practice and her battery's been having problems. I'm getting her, we're getting a new one today. And so I've been charging it up and... Uh, and so she called me up. It was, I don't know what time in the afternoon. She said, Dad, I hate to bug you. She said, but my car won't start. I said, it's okay, honey. Drove over and jumped her, and she was sitting there smiling. And, you know, we got it started, and it's kind of Hannah's temperament. And, but as I was putting the cables away in the back, and I shut the trunk of her Mustang, and I was walking away, she turned. She said, Dad, thanks, Dad. I don't know what that does for you as a father, but my little girl said, thanks, Dad. I got in the car, I got kind of teary-eyed. I'm wondering, you know, she's moving on, she's going on to the next stage, but 
it felt good for her to say thanks because I was able to help her. I often wonder how often our God is just waiting to help us. Just waiting. It's like, I got the jumper cables. I can restart this situation. Just ask me for help. Cry out. And then when we let him and we say, thank you, God, that he just said, I felt good. Maybe the very reason you find your marriage in the condition it is is because you won't let God help you. And you're pursuing yourself and your own selfishness. You see, many marriages have warning signs and we need to read the warning signs before it's too late. And there are marriages here and in Link and across the world on the internet that the warning lights have been on for a long time and you're running, it's heavy. And you're pushing him out and you're pushing God out. And it's warning, he says, you better deal with the problem or you're gonna end up flat on your face. No, God, I got this one. And there's these warning signs everywhere. And yet you refuse to acknowledge them. People a lot smarter than me will show you this, and you know this, that, that we're, we're wired intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, and, and, and even psychologically. And we have this makeup that God has fearfully and wonderfully made us. And if one of those areas is sick, it impacts all the other areas. So if you're physically sick, it impacts spiritual condition. If you're spiritually sick, it impacts physical and emotional. And if you don't address the problems, if the warning signs are going off in your marriage and you're saying, I'm just hoping it gets better, you won't be healed until you deal with it. And when you draw close to God, he shows you and you must listen to the conviction of the spirit. That's your warning sign marker. Warning signs are given to us in many forms. Um, Hannah is definitely her father's daughter when it comes to putting gas in the gas tank. It didn't, it, it's amazing. Um, most of the time, my gas tank barely ever gets above a half tank. I'm always feeling like I'm just trying to get the most out of it. I hate paying $4 a gallon. Some of the think, if you keep it lower, you're getting a better deal. I know it doesn't compute. Just go with me with this illustration. <laughs> but it was Wednesday night after prayer encounter or after youth group last week and settling down for the night and it was about 10 o'clock and was in bed and uh, 9.45, get a call on my cell phone. It's Hannah, she's dead. Like that voice is, you know, one of those. I hate to ask you, but she said, I ran out of gas. I said, Where are you at, honey? She said, I'm down by the Boy Scout camp. And I said, Okay, I, I'll, I'll come down there and get some gas. So I went out in the garage, got some gas, and I went down there in their car. You know, I just felt horrible for her. There she was in her car. It's in the middle of the night and was ready to beat someone up. I need to beat them up. You know, and so I'm just, was there. And, and, and so I got out. She has that look on her. I said, It's okay, honey. I like helping you. So I pulled in behind her and I looked down at my dash and was like, my warning light's on, needs gas. <laughs> I'm glad I responded the way I did. I can't believe you drove this far without looking at gas. And I'm like, ooh. So, you know, I went out, put some gas in her car. She's holding the flashlight and gas is spilling everywhere. There's not a rocket science way of doing this. And believe me, I've, we've tried everything because we've been there many times. And, uh, um, and so she had had her flashers on while she was there. And so... Got gas in there, and I said, hey, you can just run up to the BP station and get gas, or the Sunoco station and get gas. And so she went to start, and it wouldn't start. That's right, we've been charging up the battery this week. And I'm thinking, I hope I can start my vehicle enough and run it long enough and get in front of her so I can start her car. So I turn around, and you know, and you got to keep it running, charge up. You know, you guys understand that. So I'm running this thing. Wouldn't that be something if we both ran out of gas face-to-face? <laughs> Make a long story, funny story short. I said, you know, drive on up to the gas station and, you know, I'll go home. And uh, yeah, it's so, uh, went home and uh, I'm just pouring into the garage, walking in the garage, and I looked down at my cell phone, it's ringing, it's Hannah. It's like, oh man, what happened? She says, Dad, the gas station is closed. And she said, but we can use a charge car, but they won't take cash. And I'm like, and I'm, I'm realizing, I don't even know if I can make it back to the gas station. <laughs> so I drive back and give her card and, and you know I should have just put gas in my vehicle but I was still thinking I could get it tomorrow morning you know how that goes just so she gets home and I forget all about it I come to the office and Isaiah had a cross-country meet and I was going to, or a golf match and I was going to watch Isaiah play golf and I got in the car and look oh man I'm, oh man I'm low on gas so I drive up here to the gas station and 
and shut it off, put some gas in, and so the gas, I go to start, it won't start. It was completely dry. The fuel had been completely out of the fuel pump. I ran out of gas there. All that to say this, we have tanks that need to be filled, and there are warning signs called the Holy Spirit that says, problem, problem, attend to this problem, fill the tank up, Jimmy, fill it up. And if we don't address these tanks and fill them up, there will come a time when these tanks will be empty and we're flat on our faces in the midst of this journey called marriage. And even if we're flat on our faces, think about this. The Bible also tells us in Ephesians 5.33 that husbands must love their wives unconditionally and wives must respect their husbands unconditionally. And by the way, don't tell me that's not unconditional. That text says this must. It's easy for us, for our wives to say, well, you should love. Bible says you need to love me regardless of if I'm nagging you. Well, you need to say to your wives, you're supposed to respect me regardless if I love you. Goes both ways. And there's these tanks that men and women have. Women have a love tank that needs to be filled. Men have a respect tank that needs to be filled. And so this journey called marriage moves along. And we're supposed to fill their love tank, and they're supposed to fill our respect tank. And if there's a warning sign, and here's how the warning signs play out. If your husband is angry and doesn't know why he's angry, it's often because you haven't poured into his respect tank. If your wife is constantly nagging, it's often because you haven't filled up her love tank, her to-do list, the way of her love languages. If your husband shuts down, it's often because of stonewalling and because you haven't filled up his respect tank. If she becomes critical, it's often because you haven't filled up her love tank. If she says, I don't love you anymore, it's because you haven't put love in her tank. She has no reservoir of love. If he says, I am just tired of trying. It's because there's nothing in his respect tank. There's warning signs and you got to be aware of them. They're just symptoms of something else. And then there's this whole other tank that sometimes is just, man, it's, it's just overflowing. You have respect and you have love and you have this other tank that, boy, it kind of just naturally fills itself. And it's called the bitterness and unforgiveness tank. And it's like, it's just full. In fact, it's seeping over the top. It's just loaded with unforgiveness and bitterness. And what happens is this. We're supposed to give out of ourselves, but men, here's what happens. Our tanks are empty. I could barely help Hannah because I didn't have any gas in my tank. And women can't help their husbands because husbands haven't put love into the tank. And so what you have is two empty tanks they're going to fall flat on their face. And you know what tank you end up using? You go over here and you grab this unforgiveness tank called the septic tank. <laughs> and there's plenty of that. And so what happens is you take the septic tank and say, I'll show you. You want some love? Poof. I'll show you. You want some love? Poof. And so you have these tanks that are meant for love and respect. And they're full of crap. And you wonder, why is this marriage went to crap? It's because you haven't taken the drain plug off the septic tank and forgiven and let it go. And let it make the grass green. Instead, you've held on to it and you filled the other tanks. And some of you, there's scum marks at the top of the love tank and the top of the respect tank for those times that you have thrown that in. And God is saying this, fill the love tank, fill the respect tank and take the septic tank and empty it. And there are marriages, oh my goodness that have just dumped crap into the tanks that were made for love and respect. And 2 Corinthians tells us this. In chapter 2, 
that if we neglect to forgive each other and drain the septic tank, that when we dump that crap into the tanks and hold on to it, that Satan can outwit us with his schemes. Fascinating. Forgiveness is attached, lack of forgiveness is attached to Satan scheming to tear us up. Let me wrap it up by saying all this. Wins, maturity starts in our mind first. Galatians 6, 7 says, a man reaps what he sows. And our words have grown a lot of graveyards through the years of our marriage. And when we look back for these memorials of grace, we look back and say, there's a gravestone. <laughs> look at that gravestone. Look at that gravestone. When there should be flowers and trees that are flourishing because we've forgiven each other. There's nothing more beautiful than redemption stories. There's nothing more moving than watching a marriage face a trial, face a difficulty, turn to God, dump the septic tank, love each other, respect each other, and stand on the other side of the finish line together and say, look what we got. And all across, we have all these students called couples whose marriages have been stamped incomplete and thinking that I'll bail out of this even though I'm immature and I'll jump into another relationship and take immature me and it will make it better. That isn't always the case. Ten years ago, I'm sitting in my office on Clinton Street. A lady walked into my office who had attended Grace for a while. In her 60s, 65. Walked in, and I knew her story somewhat. And she said, Pastor Jim, I filed for divorce, and I was supposed to go down today. She'd been married 30, 35 years. So I'm supposed to go down today and finalize this. She says, but I had to come talk to you, she said, because I don't feel peace about this. She said, my spirit is just, it's not settled. And, and by the way, he was... He hadn't loved her. He hadn't cared for her. She, had, she didn't know what it meant to hold a hand. I mean, I, I've been praying for a marriage for a long time. He was dead, and, and the relationship was just, it was just dead. She said, I can't go on anymore. But she, she came in that day, and she said, can you, uh, Pastor Jim, can you, can you uh, help me? What should I do? And I looked her in the eyes, and I said this. I said, you don't have any peace about this, do you? She said, no, I don't. I said, you're asking me what I would do? Then I wouldn't follow through. So she left that meeting. I, I wasn't sure what she was going to do. She went down to the courthouse. She had her lawyer. She had spent a bunch of money. And she went down and she told the lawyer, she says, I can't follow through with this. I just don't have peace about it. And she said, will you tear up the papers? So they tore up the papers and threw them away. Six years ago, four years after that, I'm in my office. And she had moved on. They had moved on to another area. And I, I see this lady walk in the office. I recognized her. I'll just save her name. It doesn't matter. She walked in. Hey, how you doing? I haven't seen you in a while. She had a grin on her face, and she was like 70, and she had a little hop, and she came walking in, and she said, she started, just started weeping. She said, Pastor Jim, you will never believe what happened. I said, well, tell me. She said, that day that I came in, yes, I remember that. She said, she said my husband holds my hand now. My husband loves me, and he ain't got me flowers this week. She said, I would have never experienced this if I would have just bailed out, she finished the race. And by God's grace, he redeemed it. I've asked my wife to join me on stage to close out some thoughts today. There's something about those kind of stories that just inspire me. I won't pretend to say that's everyone's story, nor might it be yours. But I will say this. I believe some of us have bailed out of the race way too soon. 
And if we want to be completed and mature, maybe we got to give it back over to God. Honey, what would you say in regards to what we've been talking about today? What would be a word that you would give? You, know, you, you sat through four messages, actually 12 after today. <laughs> Get to hear it three times. And, and by the way, Anne had said this morning, she's, I'm so glad this is the last message. <laughs> I don't have to sit up there anymore, but I, I want to publicly thank you, honey, for, for coming. But what, what would you say in regards to some final words that you would give to marriages? Listen to what he said. <laughs> He's a lot of good stuff this morning. Um, what comes to mind? final like- word would be just to keep talking to each other. Um, I do, I, I've heard ripples of this series and how it's affecting um, some of our marriages in Grace Community Church. And I know that it has brought up some hard issues and surfaced some pain, um, but that's a good first step to actually talk about it and be real with each other. And, and you can do something about it, especially when God's in the equation. What would be a, a practical step that you would speak to husbands in ways to love their wives? And what would be, why is that important for them to fill that tank? Your wife's heart is the most precious treasure that she has. And a lot of those hearts are hurting. And, and you might wonder, like, how can, how can my wife get so mad at me? or I, if that happens to ever happen. But it's, it's because she cares what you think. And, and then if it's been hurt so often or if that anger isn't, isn't um, working, um, she might just stop talking. Um, that, you know, that's not good either if she's trying to stuff and and not acknowledge. So um, it's a treasure, and, and there's a special place in her heart that only you can fill. Now, I do realize a lot of us women, we also have that, the special place in our heart that only God can fill, and, and you husbands can't fill that part. So I know as women, sometimes when we first get married, we think that our husband is going to fill this void that we have. And, and that's not true, um, that, that God-shaped void. But when she gives you her heart, when you do get married, then you, there is a part that, that is yours to fill. And if it's empty, um, you're just crushing her spirit. But if you start filling it up, you, you'd be surprised, I think, how quickly life can come back. What would you say, in, in closing, what would you say to uh, um, how can wives respect their husbands? What are some, what's one practical way? Why is that a good thing? Well, it's, it's kind of the same on both sides. And I, I, I think an important first step, at least for me, was when I realized that I didn't have it all figured out. <laughs> and I, it's a pride thing, I guess. Um, but thinking that I knew what we needed to do what the plan was, and I just needed to get him to follow my plan. When I, when I realized, when I gave that up and really was humble before God, asking him to have his way, um, that's when good things happen. I realized this morning uh, that we've been married, you know, I'm 50. We've been married 20, almost 20, almost half my life I've been married to you. That's, and that's, I thank you for that. Thanks for your commitment to me. And uh, it's been fun finishing a lot of the, the, the trials and the struggles. And uh, we've learned a lot through those, and we're stronger because of it. And uh, we really have something. And I really believe it's because, you know, of, of your willingness, you know, uh, to seek after God. And hopefully my willingness to seek after God, too. We wouldn't have got to where we're at today. It wouldn't be for God. So I just want to thank you uh, for your love for me. I ask you to stand. If you are married and, and you're married, would you stand and ma- stand with your spouse? And you can stand if you're married and your spouse isn't here. Grab a hold of their hands and turn and face each other. Go ahead and face each other. Uh, go ahead and give them a...
big fat kiss first. Go ahead. I give you permission. Give him a kiss. <laughs> give another one while you're at it. <laughs> Somebody say, oh, please. But uh, I'm going to ask uh, everyone else to stand and, and lay a hand on top of married couples and individuals. We just work around and find a married couple and lay your hands on top of them. And, and we want to pray, uh, pray for them. And so I ask you to move. Please move. This is, way, this is the body of Christ helping together. Move and lay your hands. And I'm going to pray over marriages. Father God, I pray that we would look to you, the author and perfecter, finisher of our faith, who had the cross set before him and didn't walk away. I pray for victories, God, instead of defeats. I pray for a staying power in marriage. I pray for deep intimacy. I pray for love tanks to be filled and respect tanks to be filled and septic tanks to be emptied. I pray, Jesus, that these marriages would go to places that they've never been. I just command Satan and his demons to leave the households of these marriages. And I ask God that you would send your angels to protect and guard and guide. I pray for a fighting spirit. I pray for men to lead and fight for their homes and their wives and their sons and their daughters and their brothers. I pray for stories of redemption to surface from this room and from the link and from the internet. And I pray that Grace Community Church would be a place, a mooring point, where people look and say, look what God is doing in those marriages. I pray that men and women would stick to their words until death do us part. And I pray, God, for victory. I pray for victory and victory and victory and victory. I commit them to you in these marriages in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. And everyone said, amen. amen. God bless you. See you next week.